Well, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 23, and we shall be reading from verse 31 of chapter 23 through to the end of chapter 24. I've divided our reading into two this evening because we're going to be considering quite a long passage as we uh, come to the end of our series in 2 Kings. Just before our passage, we, uh, we've read about Josiah, the last good king of uh, Judah and the great reformation that took place during his reign. But sadly, it was downhill all the way after that. So, let us hear the word of the Lord beginning in chapter 23, starting at verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblar in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabida, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, 
and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. But because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And so we pick up our reading in chapter 25. And in the ninth year of his reign, Zedekiah's reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all round it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were round the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls round Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the firepans also in the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver, as silver. 
As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A lattice work and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all round the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the lattice work. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city, and Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed... Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, governor. Now, when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, the Natophathite, and Jarzaniah, the son of the Markathite. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, son of Elishamah of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces, arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Well, there's an awful lot going on in our uh, passage this evening. But essentially what we see happening in these passages is the history of Judah coming to an end. We're coming to the end this evening in, in our series in Two Kings, and with it we come to the end of of Judah. And just to give a very brief um, overview of what's happening here in terms of the history, um, the, uh, the final two chapters and a bit of two kings cover the reigns of four kings. We have Jehoahaz, who reigned for just three months in 609 BC, 
Then we have Jehoiakim, who reigned for 11 years, from 609 to 598. Then Jehoiakim, who reigned for just three months, from 598, end of 598 through to the beginning of 597. And then finally, Zedekiah, who reigned for 11 years, pattern of three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years, interestingly. And uh, Zedekiah reigned from 597 through to 586 when the nation of Judah bit the dust. And all of these kings are evil. And during their reigns, Babylon becomes the dominant world power. It overtakes the Assyrian uh, Empire and becomes um, the superpower of the day. And... um, Babylon actually attacked Judah on uh, several occasions and um, carried out several deportations. Its first deportation of some of the inhabitants of Judah took place in the year 605. Daniel and his friends were deported at that point to, uh, to Babylon. And then there was another deportation in 597. That was when Ezekiel was taken away into exile. But it wasn't until 586 or 587, there's a bit of a debate about when exactly um, Babylon completely conquered Judah, but it wasn't until then that um, the exile, as it were, was full and final and complete. And at that point, the history of Judah came to an end. That's a a very brief overview of the history as we have it here in the final two chapters of Two Kings. Now, of course, this history is recorded for a purpose. It's it's a theological history as much as um, Chronicles and, I suppose, Samuel as well is a theological history, a theological history that is designed to teach the people of God throughout the ages various lessons And I am sure a number of lessons could be drawn from our lengthy passage this evening, but I just want to draw out two. And the first one, and I'll probably spend most time on this particular one, is what I've called the sadness of exile. Lesson number one, the sadness of exile. Sadness is, I think, the prevailing Note that is struck in the final couple of chapters of Two Kings. The history that is recorded here is a most tragic, desperately tragic history. There is, as one commentator puts it, a pall that lies over the text, a gloom that the writer wants you to feel. And what we see is that such gloom that the writer wants the reader to feel is expressed in a few different ways. Let me just mention three. It's, it's expressed, first of all, in terms of the context of Judah's exile. Just prior to these chapters, as I mentioned before I started reading them, we have the most wonderful account of the Reformation that took place in Judah at the time of uh, King Josiah. That glorious um, time when, when Judah was, was thoroughly revived and the people under the, the godly leadership of King Josiah returned to the Lord. But that reformation, 
proved to be very short-lived. Within 22 years, that's the period that's covered in the final couple of chapters of 2 Kings, within 22 years, the nation that had experienced a wonderful outpouring of the Spirit of God had essentially ceased to exist. And so the very context uh, in which Judah's exile takes place really does accentuate the tragedy of of the exile. Under Josiah, Judah reached a, a great height, but it fell from that great height and it fell very, very quickly. The decline, and really the writer wants to communicate this in the way he tells the story very rapidly, the decline was very rapid. From such a great height under Josiah, within 22 years, the nation had gone. And then the sadness of the exile is also conveyed in the just in the telling of the details of what actually happened, let me just mention a few things. We have slaughter and death, don't we? We have in chapter 25 and verse 7, the slaughter of Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes, and then his eyes are plucked out and he's carted off to exile. We have also in chapter 25 an account of the killing of of the priests and the officers and the leading men of Judah, just wiped out. We also have the really the, the cream of of Judean society being carted off to Babylon in chapter twenty four. We have the pillaging and the ransacking and the demolition of the temple in chapter twenty five, when Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, comes and burns down the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the great houses. Of Judah. It's a scorched earth policy. The walls are completely demolished. And just prior to that, there was a severe famine. And these are just some of the things that happened during the course of the exile uh, of Judah. The exile must have been a deeply traumatic event for those who experienced it. Exile meant for them death and destruction and demolition. But the greatest tragedy, the greatest sadness of Judah's exile was not the the context in which it took place, falling from such a great height uh, during the days of Josiah and the Reformation, nor was it the particular events, the death and the destruction that accompanied the exile. No, the the great sadness of the exile consisted in what it signified. And what the exile signified was that God had judged and abandoned his people. That is the great truth that is being communicated by the writer in the recording of the exile of Judah, that that God is the one who is executing judgment against his people. God is the one who is casting them off and abandoning them. I mean, why was Judah carried off into exile? Well, yes, it was in part because of the foolish foreign policy of its successive kings. And we have to say that they were foolish, rebelling against uh, Babylon. And yes, it was also in part because of the superior military power of the Babylonians, But you see, the ultimate reason, this is made very clear in our text, that Judah was carted off to exile was because God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, was acting in righteous judgment against his people. 
And you can see that this fact is underscored several times by our writer. Just look at chapter 24 and verses 2 to 4. This is in the days of Jehoiakim. He's rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And then we read in verse 2 of chapter 24 that the Lord sent against him, Jehoiakim, bands of the Chaldeans, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites, bands of the Ammonites. The Lord sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. And why did this happen? Well, this happened, verse 3, because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, because of the innocent blood that he had shed. And then as you go on in chapter 24, we read in verse 13 when um, the temple is being um, pillaged and its treasures are being taken away, that all of these things were being taken away, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. It takes place according to the, the word of the Lord. And then perhaps most chillingly, as we come to the end of chapter 24, with the final king, Zedekiah, and his rebellion against Babylon, we read that this happened, verse 20, because of the anger of the Lord. It came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. Here we are given, you see, the theological explanation for all that takes place. What lay behind these momentous geopolitical events, what lay behind the series of calamities that were inflicted upon Judah was the sovereign hand and sovereign will of the covenant Lord of heaven and earth. It was God, you see, who in faithfulness to his word, in faithfulness to the threats of his covenant, sent his people into exile. It was God who sent them away. It was God who cast them out from his presence. Just as he had once cast out Adam and Eve from his presence in Eden, so now he casts out his covenant people from his presence in the land of Judah. What we see happening at the end of two kings with Judah's exile is a tragic reversal of all of those covenant blessings that God had promised to his people, that God had bestowed upon his people. The promised blessing of being God's people in God's land, in the context of God's presence, living under God's rule. Those were God's promised covenant blessings, a people, a land. With me as your king, ruling over you, you enjoying my presence. Now that's all gone. In place of those blessings, cursings have come. The people whom God loved as his treasured possession. The people to whom God gave his law and the temple, and the worship, and the covenants. The people who had been blessed above all the peoples of the earth, this people forfeited all of their covenant privileges. They kept on sinning and sinning and sinning against him. 
And so God cast them out. He sent them away into exile. And in a very real sense, said to them, you who were once my people are no longer my people. And this is the real sadness of Judah's exile. The fact that it signified that God had come against them in righteous judgment and cast them out from his presence. And this is the real sadness because, of course, there is nothing sadder. There is nothing more grievous than to be separated from God. That is the ultimate tragedy. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that you feel a certain sadness reading these final two chapters of Two Kings. Because the writer wants you to feel such sadness, and because such sadness is intended to have a beneficial effect upon you. If nothing else, reading about the tragedy of Judah's exile should make you very humble and very watchful and very prayerful. After all, what happened to Judah then can and does still happen to churches today. Local congregations, even whole denominations, which at one time may have experienced great blessing from the Lord, even revival and reformation, may in a few short years be cast out. Local churches, even whole denominations, may find that if they proudly and persistently defy Christ, that the Lord will remove their lampstand from its place. They may find him effectively saying to them, you who were once my people are no longer my people. And we at CPC, and we in our particular denomination, we need to heed the very salutary warning that is provided by this account of Judah's exile. We must not read this account and say to ourselves, well, that that could never happen here. We're just too loyal, too reformed, too theological for that to ever happen to us. The dreadful sadness of what happened to God's very own people at the end of two kings should drive us to our knees in repentance and should cause us to cry out, O Lord, be merciful to us. Be merciful to us. In your mercy, may this never, never happen to us. Forgive us for our many, many sins. And never cast us out from your presence. And so we see the sadness of exile. But then, a bit more briefly, we also see what I've called the hope of restoration. The picture 
from chapter 23, verse 31, right almost to the end of chapter 25, is entirely bleak. But then, quite remarkably, the book of two kings closes with a ray of hope. Where we read in verses 27 to 30 about the, the, the restoration, the elevation of Jehoiakim. How he is graciously freed from prison. How evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, speaks kindly to him and raises him above the other kings who are in exile and allows him to dine regularly at his table. This event occurs 26 years after Jehoiakim and Judah's exile in 586 BC. And clearly our writer must credit what happens here with a great deal of significance. Otherwise he wouldn't have bothered recording it. This restoration of Jehoiakim is meant to function as a positive contrast with all that has gone before, perhaps especially the Gedalia fiasco, which we don't have time to get into. And it's intended to provide God's people with the general hope that they will yet survive. But these verses don't merely provide general hope. They actually provide a much more a specific hope, a hope that is focused on the line of David. Now, in this connection, it is, I think, highly significant that in verse 27, what is Jehoiakim called? Twice he is called the king of Judah. And you say, well, Jehoiakim's not really much of a king, is he? He is subject to the king of Babylon, evil Merodach. And in addition to that, well, what's happened to Judah? Well, to all intents and purposes, it's no longer a nation. So in reality, well, Jehoiakim's not really the king of Judah, is he? And yet, very deliberately, The writer calls Jehoiakim the king of Judah, and he does so for this one reason. To show that the Lord's covenant promise, which he made way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, to provide a king in the line of David to sit on the throne of David forever, that promise is still in operation. That's what he is communicating here in this final paragraph. That covenant promise, which I first made to David, still stands, despite all of my people's sin and disobedience. In other words, this paragraph provides sure and certain hope to God's people of restoration, because it shows that neither the might of Babylon nor the apostasy of Judah could crush God's covenant promise that he would raise up a king in the line of David to lead, to shepherd, to save his people. That is the hope that we see 
in this final paragraph. The specific hope that someone would yet come in the line of David. And at that point, the story of two kings ends. But as we well know, the story doesn't really end there. The story of God's covenant dealings with his people continues beyond the end of Judah, beyond the exile of Judah. You just turn to the first page of your New Testament. And there what do you see? You see Matthew in his genealogy picking up where 2 Kings 25 left off. There he records the deportation to Babylon. And at that particular point, when Judah was exiled, God's covenant promise to provide a land for his people, together with his promise to raise up a king, seemed to have been revoked, seemed to have been forgotten. But as Matthew goes on in his genealogy, he shows that God had most certainly not forgotten his covenant. He goes on to show that God, in fulfillment of his ancient promise, sent Jesus, his son, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the great king, into this world. And it is through him through Jesus, that all of God's covenant promises of land, of people, of everlasting blessing are fulfilled. For it is through Jesus that you who have been exiled by your sin from the presence of God are restored and brought back into the presence of God, to know him, to experience him, to enjoy him. And that happened, of course, because of what Jesus did as your great covenant king, lord and head. He gave himself up to death on the cross. And there on the cross, he in your place was cast out from the presence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cast me out? Why have you exiled me? Jesus was sent, in a manner of speaking, into exile as he bore all of your sins. And because Jesus Christ did that for you, you can be sure that you will never, never be cast out. Because of Jesus, you, brothers and sisters, will never be sent into the exile of everlasting punishment in the fires of hell. Rather, because of what Jesus Christ did in your place, God will welcome you into the land of the new creation, where you will dwell with him and all of God's people in perfect safety and perfect peace and perfect joy forever. The hope 
that is there, right at the end of two kings, is fulfilled in Jesus. And it's yours as those who belong to him. Perhaps some of you this evening are very sad. Perhaps some of you are burdened by your sin, by a particular sin that you have committed. Perhaps some of you are surrounded by great darkness and you are shorn of all hope. All I say to you this evening is, well, Jesus Christ is your King. Jesus Christ is your great and gracious King and, and he has you in his hands and in the hands the omnipotent hands of the Lord Jesus Christ you'll never be cast out you'll never be forsaken you'll never be separated from the loving presence of your heavenly father Amen